All right. Today's sermon is titled, Having an Eternal Perspective. Seven ways our beliefs should shape the way we live and think. Our beliefs about eternity should shape the way we live and think. So I've wanted to speak on this for a good while. This has been on my list for a while. Um, and the biblical principles we're going to look at have played a huge part in like why I do what I do and who I am as a person. Like I think this is really um, formational stuff here. Like this is really important for every Christian to understand. All right, let's get into it. So first thing we're going to talk about why we need to have an eternal perspective. So there's three reasons that I'm going to mention of why we need to have an eternal perspective. Number one, the Bible doesn't even make sense without eternity. If you try to look at scriptures through a paradigm without eternity, it won't work. It's just full of contradictions. Moreover, the Bible points out how its own message would be worthless and contradictory were it not for eternity. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 18. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I meant to go on to the few next verses. Can we get the few next verses? Next three verses, give or take. So 19 through 21. Um, if, in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we uh, are of all people most to be pitied. That's the verse I wanted to get. So the Bible, without eternity, isn't worth believing. Like, woe is you if you believe it, and life existence doesn't go on for eternity. The Bible doesn't make sense without eternity. So that's number one reason why we need an eternal perspective. Number two, the Bible teaches that there is a final judgment coming and how we live now will affect our eternity. So judgment and eternity are very connected in the scriptures. All people will have a judgment before God before they enter eternity or before they enter, you know, the state where they won't um, die again or where they're dying continually. So there's kind of two types of judgment. Um, the first, believers and unbelievers. John Gray did an excellent job uh, two weeks ago on his sermon, The Book of Deeds. If you want to understand more about this, go back and re-listen to that sermon. But let's take a look at Revelation 20, 11 through 15. 
then I saw, so this is, um, you know, John the Revelator on the island of Patmos, and, um, and this is the latter part of the book, and he's been given a revelation, and um, yeah. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that um, is, you know, we will be judged whether or not we've received the blood of Christ, whether or not it's been applied to us. If it hasn't, we're still in our sins. But not only that, um, there's a type of reward judgment for believers. We, so Jesus mentions in the Gospels, and we'll take a look at it in just a second, that there's rewards for how we live as redeemed believers. So let's take a look at a few verses that reference that. Second uh, Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Luke 12, 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then this one I like a lot. Luke six twenty-two through 23. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and then they revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. So you can tell in the scriptures that, you know, there's a principle that believers will be judged and rewarded. You know, if, you're, if you've received the blood of Christ, if it's been applied to you, you have eternal life. Um, but there's, you know, different levels of rewards for how good of stewards we are in our lives on earth. And I want to quickly mention, it's not bad to want reward. Like, it's easy to think, well, isn't that unloving? But there's, there's a fine line here. So, A, 
Jesus told us to pursue reward, and I don't think Jesus was the type to, you know, purposefully be a stumbling block. I don't think that if it's a sin to pursue reward, he would tell us to do it. Um, secondly, Jesus was motivated by reward and by love. Let's take a quick look at Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus for the joy before him. The joy is the bride that he acquired. But it wasn't just for our sake, it was for both. It very much was for our sake. You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not contradictory to be motivated by both. In fact, it'd be somewhat wrong not to, because they're both valuable. You know, the well-being of your neighbors and your brothers in Christ is valuable, therefore you should value it. And whatever God would have to reward you with is also valuable, therefore you should value it. Uh, just to support that point, I want to look at Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, we should love others for the value of doing good for them, especially loving God for the value of you know, pleasing him as we were created to. But we should be motivated by both. All right, third reason why we need to live with an eternal perspective. The Bible teaches that we should live with eternity in mind. Um, Going to quickly look at more scriptures again. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 7, verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Let's take a look at Luke 12, 13 through 21. Someone in the crowd came to Jesus saying, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my, my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then the last one we're going to look at in this section, Psalm 39, verse 4. 
O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. So all these verses speak of death, but we know from the scriptures that death is not the end. So when we're thinking about how short our life on earth is, or how short this life is, what we should really be thinking about is eternity. So that's reason number three of why we need to have an eternal perspective. All right, so in this next section, I want to kind of take the time to paint a picture of what the scriptures say eternity will be like. You know, if we're going to have an eternal perspective, we may as well know what the scriptures teach about eternity. So uh, this is divided into two sections, eternal life and eternal death. Um, the section on eternal life is going to be longer. But um, yeah, so there's really two options. Everyone exists forever. You either go to eternal life or eternal death. So let's take a look at eternal life. All right, I've got six principles and then some implications. All right, number one, eternal life will be on earth and will be uh, the fulfillment of everything human life was meant to be before the fall. So I have a few reasons for thinking that eternal life will be on earth and it, it definitely will be everything that God meant human life to be before the fall. For one thing, um, in Revelation, you know, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. We're not just all like up in heaven as if God canceled his original plan. Let's take a look at Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. So this is the Beatitudes. This is the section where Jesus is saying, blessed is so-and-so, blessed is so-and-so, blessed is so-and-so. And when you look at all of them, really, he's just defining Christians. He's just defining what it is to be a Christian. If a person is a Christian, they'll have these qualities. So blessed are God's people, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's look at Matthew 6.10 while we're in Matthew. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's not trying to bring us to heaven and forget about the earth. God is bringing heaven to earth. And my greatest reason for thinking this, the dominion mandate was never abolished. God never got rid of the dominion mandate. We'll still commanded to... Um, to fulfill, to fill the earth and subdue it and to fill it with the glory of God. That's part of God's design for man. That doesn't go away. All right, principle number two. In eternal life, we will live forever without any sorrow or pain. Let's take a look at Revelation 21, verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death, has, death shall be no more. 
neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's pretty great. That'll be life change. All right, uh, principle number three. We will be fully sanctified. Let's take a look at Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God will perfectly sanctify all of us. That's good news. Um, where was I? This next one is an interesting one. Principle number four. We will experience God fully and continually grow in knowing him. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So let me take a minute to explain why I worded it this way. So, you know, it says we will fully know as we've been fully known. But the word used for know is gnosko, and the one in the second part of the sentence is epigonosko, but it's, it's still gnosko. So what that means, that's like experiential type knowledge. That's like Adam knew his wife. That's not like Adam passed the exam after reading the textbook. <laughs> it's not what it is. It's not that type of knowledge. It's the same word used in Ephesians 3.19. Let's look at Ephesians 3.19, just to get a sense of how this word is used. So this is God praying for the Ephesian church, and, uh, and towards the end of his prayer, he says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Well, how do you do that? How can you know something that's not knowable? And it's, it's two different Greek words here. Um, I know I've mentioned this in another sermon. I forgot to look up what the second Greek word is. Um, but you know, it's that you would gnosko. It's that you would experientially know the love of God that's too deep to intellectually fully grasp. So it's that same word that's used. So it's not like we'll fully intellectually grasp infinite God, but we will fully experience God. My second point, um, continuing that train of thought, God isn't going to make us omniscient. God is going to sanctify us, but God isn't going to make us omniscient. He's not going to make us into God. We won't be omnipresent, we won't be omnipowerful, and we won't be omniscient. And um, along with that, God is infinite. God's infinite, and God's not going to make us infinite. 
And since we're finite and God is infinite, even though we'll be fully sanctified, we won't fully know him. But there will be enough to know about him, since he's infinite, to keep getting to know more about him forever. To keep knowing him better forever. John Gray has a question? Oh, okay. <laughs> Feel free to worship. But yeah, that's awesome. Like, we will get to know God forever, more and more. And we will fully experience him immediately. Fifth point, fifth principle. We will have new bodies that don't have any health problems or any negative effects of sin. Take a look at Second Corinthians five uh, one through four. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be put in our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, so, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You know, as we age, we get more and more health problems by and large. We should try to diet and exercise to mitigate that, but... Health problems and pain happen to everyone, and they tend to increase. <laughs> so diet and exercise, everybody. But, uh, <laughs> but no, the point of this is that that will be no more. And then my sixth point of what we know from the Bible about eternal life, and this is not at all a comprehensive list, by the way. Um, you know, there, you could do your own studies. There's plenty more. This is just kind of a summary. But point number six, we will eat, drink, work, fellowship, and worship. So let me explain that list a little bit because I don't have just one verse for that. So I know some people think all you do is float around on a cloud all day and strum a harp. That is an unbiblical vision. That is not the case. Let me debunk that. All right, number one, for Christ ate in his resurrection body. Let's take a look at Acts 10, 40 and 41. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Let's take a look at Matthew 26, 29. This is Jesus during the Last Supper. I, t telling to his disciples, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it, uh, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So that's why I think we'll eat and drink in eternal life. But will also work. 
So, contrary to what some people might think, work existed before the fall. <laughs> work is not a product of the fall. Work is part of God's design. It's because God made us in his image. God creates stuff. God works. God takes what he created and makes it better. And the dominion mandate was not abolished. So we will work because it's part of our design. And the same goes for fellowship. God's Trinitarian. He made us in his image. We will fellowship. And most obviously, we will indeed worship. And it'll be awesome because we'll experience God fully and we'll have eternity to get to know him deeper. So that's, that's a pretty good list of stuff. That The summary of those things is pretty cool because when you really add them together, just think about the implications, there's some pretty cool implications. So I have four implications worth taking from this. I need to hurry up a bit. Number one, life will get better and better forever and ever. So for one thing, we'll get to know God deeper and deeper. And that means our worship will get deeper and deeper. That means it will get more and more joyous. What does it say in Psalm? I didn't write this one down, but you know, Psalm 1611, in your presence there's fullness of joy and pleasures forever. We'll get to know God deeper and deeper. Our joy in his presence will increase ongoingly. Not only that, but we'll work and our work will produce fruit, and that will be eternally compounding results. You'll be able to work and make something, like a tool, or new technologies will be produced, and then you can use those to produce more, and produce more, and produce more. Our work will be eternally compoundingly fruitful. We'll also be able to have deeper and deeper relationships with each other. Number two, our daily worship and experience of God will be deeper and more joyful than any of our worship has been now. Amen. And that's awesome. Like if, if you haven't experienced the presence of God deeply in worship, you need to pursue that. You should listen to the sermon that I did on experiencing deeper worship. But that's just awesome to think about. Our joy in the presence of God will be deeper than anything we've had yet. We'll have perfect and joyful relationships with everyone. This is the nice thing about everyone being fully sanctified. No more arguments with people. Or no more fights with people. I don't know if we'll disagree or not. <laughs> and we'll be able to get to know people deeper and deeper ongoingly. So to me, I look at that, just those implications right there, and I think it's worth noting. I would say or bet life then will be happier than anything we've ever known now. Just period. All right, so that's the principles and implications I have about eternal life. Let's quickly go into or talk about eternal death. So what the Bible says about eternal death, um, people will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
Let's take a quick look at Revelation 14.11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This next point's kind of implication, but you know, so an eternal life will be fully sanctified. Sanctification is not the default. It's not automatic. It doesn't happen unless God intervenes. So I would say by implication, in eternal death, people will not be sanctified. And they will not, you know, they're not going to be, you know, sorrowful. Oh, I wish I hadn't sinned against God. No, they won't regret it. They're going to be, I'm glad I sinned against God. I wish I was God and he wasn't. People aren't going to repent. People will be still bitter at God and growing bitter towards God. And they'll be eternally adding to their guilt. But um, that's all the time I have for that. Let's get into the main point of the message. Seven ways of how having an eternal perspective should shape our lives. So number one, I mentioned this in the last two messages I did. We should realize that bitterness is stupid. So any conflict we have with another person won't last, guaranteed. Either they're redeemed by Christ's blood and they'll be fully sanctified, and we'll be fully sanctified, and either we were wrong, and we'll realize we were wrong, and we'll, you know, um, and they'll realize they shouldn't have been better at us, or realize, maybe we'll realize we were right, and we shouldn't have been better at them. But either way, everyone will be fully forgiving, and we won't care. So any conflict you have with anyone is guaranteed to end. And if you know, it doesn't go to eternal life and it goes to eternal death. Well, if two people are in eternal death, they'll just not forgive each other forever. But um, hopefully, whoever, you or whoever you're in conflict with are redeemed by the blood of Christ and have um, gotten your relationship right with him. And, you know, you won't be bitter at anyone who that happens to. You should very much pray that people are saved. But um, no Christian will have ongoing conflict. It's going to come to an end. So just realize now, if you're bitter towards anyone, you're going to change your mind and you're going to regret being bitter towards them. So you may as well change that now. B, or point two, we should see that most of our fears are irrelevant. So they probably are anyways, because a lot of the things we feared never actually happen. But moreover, even if they did, a lot of the things we fear wouldn't be that bad in light of eternity. So I'm going to go through a few of them. People will think badly of me. Well, in the grand scheme of things, that's kind of small, because you've got your short little life, and, um, and let's say people do think badly of you, and then... At the end of your short little life, if you're a Christian, you're going to have perfect relationship with everyone. So that's rather insignificant. 
you know, let's say you're afraid of physical suffering. There is physical suffering. Um, a lot of what we fear doesn't actually happen, but even if it does, you know, you have physical suffering in your short little life, and then you have a perfect body and no pain. I might fail or make a mistake. Yeah, you might, but you know, at the end of it, at the end of your short little life, you'll fully see God's grace, and you'll fully enjoy his presence, and it'll be pretty insignificant that you failed or made a mistake. So most of our fears are irrelevant. You know, this is why it's important we have an eternal perspective. If we actually have one and let it shape the way we think, it'll radically change the way we think for the better. Number three, it should give us patience for suffering. This one's a fun one. I like this one. So our suffering, even if tragic and brutal, which it's probably not, will last for seconds compared to the eternal happiness God has promised his people. So let's take a look at some passages on this. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17. So, you know, Paul did the Corinthians. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So there's, there's just a lot of depth in this verse. And one of the first things that should come to mind is like, wait, Paul, what are you talking about? Light affliction. Light affliction. This is Paul. Let's look at some other stuff Paul says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely uh, not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Amen. But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> Let's look at 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 29. This is, um, yeah. this is Paul speaking to the Corinthians about there were various people questioning his credentials as an apostle. This is his response. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking as if a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many sleepless nights, 
in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all these things, there is daily pressure on me and anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul had a great amount of suffering, more than any of us do. And Paul doesn't say, um, if we go back to 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, he doesn't say, for this deep and painful affliction is preparing for us in a way to eternal glory fall beyond all comparison. He says this light, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. And you think, why does he say light? His affliction wasn't light. It's because of the comparison. The glory, the, the joy, the epicness of it all will be so great that Paul's deep and like lifelong afflictions until he was murdered for being a Christian, they're light in comparison. And ours, which are so much less than his, are light in comparison. So it should give us patience for suffering. You know, in the epic joy that God has promised us that will last forever, we'll look back on our suffering on earth and it'll constantly feel more and more like it was nothing. Because, you know, that's how memory works. You, you live 70 years and, wow, 70 years was a long time. Then internally, eternity, you live another 70. Oh, that was a little then another 70, then another 70, then another 70. It goes on forever. By comparison, it's less and less all the time. At the end of it, it's going to feel like a few seconds at most. Light, momentary affliction. So it should give us patience for suffering. Point number four, it should make us thankful. God has given us more good than we could possibly imagine, and we definitely deserve none of it. If we really thought, like the list that I made um, of principles and implications about eternity, I first, while doing a Bible study, made that list some years ago, and I never really thought about it in depth. Like, what's a summary of what the Bible says about eternal life? And it like really hit me when I saw all of it combined. I'm like, whoa, that's going to be like awesome beyond comparison. But I had never really thought about it before. But if you think about it, it should really change the way you live and think. And we should be thankful. Number five, we should be filled with hope and joy. You know, we have reason to be hopeful and joyful looking at the wonderful future God has promised us. And if you struggle with having hope or joy, you should meditate on this more. All right. Point number six. We should realize that nothing on earth, nothing is important, as important, is the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Christ waits for the gospel to advance and for his enemies to be put under his feet. 
I had that verse written down somewhere, but I don't think I have it now. But um, it's Hebrews. There was a verse I was going to read. It's in Hebrews. I think it's Hebrews ten twelve. It has to do with uh, Christ's enemies being put under his feet. Can we try to take a look at it real quick? Uh, next one, 1013. Okay, well, I guess it's 12 and 13, but we just saw 12. So 12 was, and after offering himself as a sacrifice, he sat down and was at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So you, know, you hear about the glorious future of the church, and we're like, when is it going to happen? When Christ's enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Amen. That should make us care about the advancement of God's kingdom more than anything. This is going to be the greatest thing in history. All of history waits on the advancement of God's kingdom. Nothing else is more important. We need to really think this and feel this on a deep level. This is the most important thing happening. If you want the glorious future we just talked about to come sooner, think of more ways to advance Christ's kingdom. That should be a real motivator. And then my last point, point number seven. Stewardship to God should be top priority in our lives. So this is A, like we just talked about, because the kingdom of God is of utmost importance, but also because we as stewards will answer to God. And he wants, he desires to bless us with eternal rewards for being faithful stewards and for advancing his kingdom. Another thing we looked at earlier is the shortness of our lives. Our lives are short whether we realize it or not. Cause you know how when you're six, you're like, oh goodness, I have to wait five minutes for dinner? This is forever. And then when you're 13, it's like, eh, five minutes, I can live with that. But goodness, I can't wait to drive. And, um, and then you're 16, and life just keeps going on faster and faster and faster. It's not actually going faster, but it always feels like it is. And, you know, by the time, you're, however long you live to live, it is going to feel very short. So think about that. Be ready for that. Stewardship to God should be top priority in our lives. We should be seeking to be frugal and near minimalistic so that we can give as much as possible to God's kingdom. We should be very aggressive about being on top of time management and being as diligent as we can to accomplish as much as possible for God's kingdom. We should want to do whatever we can in our lifetime 
or do as much as we can to advance God's kingdom. And if we don't have the personal goal as an individual to do as much as we can for God's kingdom, we don't really believe it's the most important thing. If you really believed it was the most important thing, you'd want to do whatever you can to advance it. You'd want to accomplish as much as you can. You would think about that. You would think about what what can I do to advance it. There's plenty of things you can do whether you see them or not. If you don't believe it, please meet with me and I will help you make a list. A custom tailored list. There's dozens of them. This is why I do everything I do. This is why me and Teresa got out of debt quickly. This is why we have a budget. This is why I teach on time management and budgeting and setting goals. Because everyone should have the personal goal of doing as much for God's kingdom as they possibly can. And if, if you don't have that goal, you don't believe it's the most important thing ever. A number of us don't actually do this. A number of us don't actually seek to, don't actually desire to advance God's kingdom as much as we can with our lives. So I want you to ask yourself, do I have, do I seek to have as much money for the kingdom as possible? I want you to ask yourself, do I manage my time to accomplish as much for the kingdom as I can? If you're a Christian and you don't seek these things, you need to change that. So I would, you know, don't feel too bad about it. God gives grace, but you've got to be real about it. If you're just realizing that, you know, you don't actually seek to do as much for God's kingdom as possible, I would encourage you to schedule a time today or this week to think about what things in your life would have to change in order for you to be putting the expansion of God's kingdom as number one priority in your life. And like I said, if you need help thinking of things, please meet with me. So if, if you're realizing that God's kingdom isn't actually being treated like top priority, please confess that to God and ask him for forgiveness. God still loves you, but you've got to be real about it. All right, in conclusion... Two points for conclusion. You need to think about eternity. You need to study it biblically. Doing so affects your levels of excitement, hope, joy, and commitment. So it's very important. And, you know, conclusion number two, the main conclusion, in all honesty, my biggest point for this message, you need to be seeking to advance God's kingdom as much as possible, and it needs to be top priority in your life. As a short side note to that, um, God's kingdom includes your relationship with him. You know, like Mary and Martha, don't be a Martha. You know, you're, without good relationship with God, you won't be as well equipped as you should be to advance God's kingdom. But, you know, 
God's kingdom, top priority. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day to hear from your word. We thank you for your grace that you give us and empowering us and equipping us and being patient with us. And we thank you for the incomprehensibly glorious future you have promised your people. We pray that that would give us hope and motivation every day, that we, because of that, would draw closer to you and trust you more. We pray that this perspective would be ours daily and it would change our lives. We thank you for your grace and amen.